Okay, here we go. Um, a, a couple things before we get into questions. Uh, a couple points I wanted to make clear. Maybe this is clear enough, but just to make sure. So, on page 16, uh, you know, I'm talking about how in point two, uh, we're declared righteous and forgiveness is a, a justice issue. And you see this in Romans 3, which is under point one on the previous page, that God has to be just. He's holy, so he must punish sin. And he wants to be a justifier. He wants to declare the wicked righteous. And it would be uh, unjust for him to do that without punishing sin. So this, this idea of a cosmic Mr. Rogers, who's, ah, it's okay. Yeah, let me change my shoes and put on a cardigan, and we'll all just go to heaven together. You know, like, that, that's not who God is. Uh, it, God, he would not be glorious if he didn't oppose all evil and punish wickedness and rebellion. Uh, the wonder of the gospel is that in Jesus, he took that on himself. For his people. Okay, so Romans 3, 23 to 28 is getting at that dynamic. So, but, but what it helps us to understand is that when God declares us righteous and when he forgives us, it's a just forgiveness. It's not unjust. And one of the big ways that the therapeutic has made inroads into the church is in this concept of forgiveness. And we've made forgiveness a very personal you know, it's about me and my feelings. And if I don't forgive, I'll become a bitter person. Of course, that's true, right? But what gets left to the side is actually that idea of justice. And that's how people get to silly notions like you have to forgive God, right? That's offensive. You're going to forgive God? Like, who do you think you are? My goodness. Uh, but, but it's also... Um, in, inherent in relationship. So if, if um, and I'll do this sometimes just to be obnoxious. If, I, if I'm having a bad attitude towards Lori and she calls me out, I'll say, I forgive you, right? That's unjust. That's unjust, right? What should I forgive her for? You know. Uh, um. It's not very funny either. <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, so one of the you know the big issues with forgiveness is is there actually anything to forgive? Just because somebody's offended with you doesn't actually mean you've wronged them. People get offended for all kinds of wrong reasons, right? People can get offended because you spoke the truth to them and they didn't want to hear it. Okay. So forgiveness is a justice issue. Um, but all right, not but. And the third point, we can also extend mercy and grace to others when we suffer injustices because we've received such extravagant grace. Right? That's Jesus' point in Matthew 18. Like, you've been forgiven this unimaginable debt. Who are you to go out and wring the neck of someone who owes you something? Okay? However, that doesn't mean that you just a doormat and you just roll over and let people do whatever they want. And, you know, um, and so you see that uh, so we can and should act justly and oppose evil as appropriate in our varying vocations. So, you know, fathers are to discipline their children, 
right? And if we don't, it, it's interesting in Luke 3 on page 17, when soldiers came to John the Baptist and they, they asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. Act justly. Go be a soldier and do it justly. Don't do it for unjust gain, right? Uh, and then verses like Psalm 15, Psalm 31, uh, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. You know, that, that almost sounds unchristian. I despise that vile person. But, but should we? Should we, you know, there's a right, you see in Psalm 31, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. It's not, oh, I'm so much better than you. Right? Because apart from the grace of God, I'd be worshiping that idol too. But I'm not, you know, it's, there's a false compassion that would explain away the wickedness of someone's behavior. Right? In the name of humility. No, if what they're doing is wicked, we should call it wickedness and we should oppose it. Um, and then, and how we oppose it depends on our, our vocation. You know, what God has arranged for us. But, so I just wanted to make those points because I think they get into some of these applications of justice as well. Um, the reason that we're doing this is I want to um, uh, help us to understand justice from a biblical standpoint. And I want us to be helpful to others. So because of your roles, you are interacting with people who both suffer injustices and uh, do unjust things against others uh, and have unjust views of life. So how do we help them? Right? Um, and it all depends, right? It just depends on the situation, depends how deep uh, their unbiblical notions of things run, how, you know, how much you've got to wade through to get to biblical truth. Some people, so, you know, Claudia worked at Cafe 18 downtown, and this summer after George Floyd, um, they posted a very social justice-y thing on their Instagram. Um, you know, we apologize, we're listening, just kind of the whole social justice position. A little bit later, uh, someone came in and bought a gift card that they wanted to give free drinks to cops, right? And so all you had to do was, as a police officer, come in, and there was a gift card sitting there with the balance, and you'd get a free drink. So they post that on Instagram. Well, all the people who affirmed the social justice stuff were offended that they would do anything nice for cops because cops are by definition racist and brutalist and, you know, like that's the worldview. And um, how do you help somebody who thinks about the world that way? Right? So um, that, that's what we want to do. I, I wish I were faster. I mean, I should have known. It's 21 pages, but I... <laughs> I, I do want to, I want to explain these terms to you a little bit, and I'm going to try and do it quick so we, we have more time to get into questions, but the, these terms used to be in the academy, and they still are, but they, they are on the front pages now. These things are coming hard and fast, okay? So, so neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, 
Um, it, it's a philosophy of human liberation. We're going to free people, right? That's what Marx... Nobody can do utopia like Marx can do utopia, right? We got it, man. We are going to free you from the burdens of oppression and bring it to this worker's paradise, right? And so this is an updated version of it that is, is uh, saying Marx missed some things, but it, it's based on this idea that you know, it's focused on material goods. It's, it's naturalistic, meaning there's no supernatural, no God, right? God's the opiate. Um, and what they're trying to do is help the oppressed be freed from their oppressive institutions. And so, like, I don't know if you saw the Smithsonian had this whole thing on whiteness. Did you all see that? Oh, my goodness. So the nuclear family is oppressive whiteness. Um, uh, a work ethic is oppressive whiteness. It's actually, it's horribly racist, not just against white people, but against everybody else. Because it's saying that you, you shouldn't be expected to love your family and work hard. That's, that's oppressive white values. I'm like, oh, could you be more offensive to, to everyone? <laughs> you know, like you're just insulting everyone. Uh, but that's how these categories. And so, you know, cultural Marxism uh, focuses on these categories. And so, you know, the classic Marx was the workers and the, the oppressors, basically. And, and so the you know, workers of the world unite. We're going to rise up and throw off the, the oppressive overlords. Or my favorite was um, dyslexics of the world untie. Right? But uh, workers of the world unite. Um, and, and they've taken some of those categories, but they've broadened it. And so you get these things like, um, so, so that's where we've all imported these categories of um, sexual orientation, right? That's why there was a move from sex to gender, because sex is biologically determined, but gender is whatever you want it to be, right? Um, and, and the idea that minorities are inherently oppressed, Okay, with the exception of women, because women are actually the majority. There's more women than men, but women are oppressed. So they're lumped into the minority category, even though they're not a minority. Okay? Um, and that those in the majority are, are by definition oppressors. So white straight men, basically, um, are oppressors. It's the patriarchy, right? You've heard all these terms. All of this is coming from these, these systems of thought, so to recognize that those categories. So, here, so I didn't even mention this with the dictionary.com. They just announced that they're updating over 15,000 entries to remove prejudicial language. Uh, and so like changing the phrase commit suicide to die by suicide because commit is judgmental. Changing homosexual to gay. They're capitalizing black like it's uh, a nationality. Right? So just things like this where they're, they're on board with the cultural revolution. Okay? This is very much a cultural revolution. And, and you can't, as, as many of the old school Democrats are finding, you can't paddle fast enough to keep up with it. Right? So, um, so but, but the whole appeal of it is there's, the world is filled with injustice. And by thinking in these categories, you can understand what the injustices are, and you can rise up and throw off these evil, oppressive institutions, and we'll usher in a new era of justice and peace and prosperity for everyone. 
And of course, if you know anything about history, you know the exact opposite will happen. Okay? But that is where this is coming from. And so this idea of identity politics uh, is, is very much tied to this. So social justice is using these categories and saying, look at the injustice. We have to address all this. And, and what's tough is, of course, there are injustices, both historic and modern, that should be addressed, right? But not, not in the categories that you're thinking of. And, but we've all been, you know, encouraged and indoctrinated, really, to think in certain categories. Like, I'm white. What does that even mean? The idea that there's a monolithic white culture or black culture or any other skin tone culture is silly. It's silly. Now, the idea that, um, that these are obvious and identifiable differences, that if you've ever been on an elementary school playground, you know lead to conflict, just like men and women, boys and girls, skin tone is an obvious identifiable difference. And so, of course, just like men and women, boys and girls, there's all kinds of conflict and injustices that, that happen through that. But, but part of what I think has happened is we've been encouraged to think of ourselves uh, primarily in categories that are not biblical categories. They're not identity categories that God gives us. So, you know, the level of melatonin in your skin determines your identity. No, it doesn't. Uh, your, your, um, your sexual desires determine your identity. No, they don't. God determines your identity. And, and what he says your identity is as a man and what righteousness is uh, ought to correct your sexual desires. Instead, you take those things and then throw them and say, no, this is who I am. And if you don't affirm this, you hate me. That's rebellion against God. Okay, so, so but these systems that have been um, really percolating, and especially from the 60s, and some of them were there before that, but they, they have, they've come out inevitably. So critical race theory, critical legal theory, um, those things uh, interacting in law schools. And so it's, look at the systemic, so you're hearing now how America is systemically racist, right? Um, I think Moeller's done a good job with that. He's like, of course systems would be affected by racism. Of course, because people run those systems, right? But to say that a system is itself inherently racist, what do you mean by that? By what standard? Right? Uh, so, and, and that's why, well, we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, but, and this is where, what's part of what's insidious about this is if you're in a majority category, you are by definition unable to understand the plight of the minority category, the oppressed. Yeah, you know, so for me, as a cisgender white male, uh, right, <laughs> all silliness. Um, my pronouns are he, the awesome. Um, right, like, silly. Like, I, I don't know, okay, anyways. I'm gonna stay on target. Um, for me to speak to this is inherently offensive, right? Because I am the oppression, I am the patriarchy. You don't get any more patriarchy than me. So for me to speak to this is is oppressive and offensive. Um, and so what it does is it disenfranchises tons of people in the name of justice. 
And that's where, you know, so the idea that, and that those are the questions I asked, are, are, are white Americans inherently racist? Are black Americans inherently oppressed? Are women inherently oppressed? Are sexual minorities inherently oppressed? Dr. King spoke really well to this, that we not judge a man by the color of his skin, by the content of his character, but what we're doing is judging men and women by the color of their skin, among other things. And we've just changed which skin color is judged. It's just a new form of racism, right? What do we do about that? How do we engage with that? Um, these are not simple things. It doesn't do any good to rail against it. We have to understand what the Bible says about it. We have to trust God. And then we've got to focus on our responsibilities vocationally. So what can I do? I can train my children. That's what I can do. I can teach in this church. That's what I can do. Right? I, I, I'm so glad I'm not on social media. Uh, I... I've never had a desire to be on social media, and I especially don't have a desire now to be on social media. I, there's so many problems I don't have, because I just, I don't want to know what you think about that. I would be very discouraged to hear what you think about that. <laughs> just, my life's better not knowing what you think about it. Um, so, but what are my responsibilities? So when the George Floyd stuff went down, one of my children was really struggling, and I said to him, look, this, this is tragic, and it looks terrible, but we don't know what happened. And we've got to wait, and we've got to give it time. But the, you know, they wanted to to do a post or something. I'm like, we've got to give it time and understand what happened, right? And if I wasn't there, or Lori wasn't there to do that, a child probably wouldn't have wouldn't have been the end of the world. But you know, it, it's that's my vocation. That's my responsibility, right? So, what people has God given you responsibility for that you can engage with to help them? to think and act and engage biblically. Because I, at least the way things are heading right now, things are getting more stark, okay? And because we affirm the sovereignty of God, we're not afraid. God's in control. Uh, my hope is still that this leads to massive repentance. Because that's what's needed. We don't need, you know, a little bit of change, a little bit of shift. We need repentance, that's what our country needs. We need regeneration. Um, and that's happened before, and it can happen again. And the gospel is the power of God's salvation, and that's our hope. Okay, and so that's why we're going to focus on the gospel. And are there social things that we can do? Societal things we can do? absolutely, and we should, right? And we're going to do them according to biblical priorities and standards. Um, but, but you know, when we're when we're faithful to God's word, and you're faithful to God's word, and you're loving your families, and you're responsible, and you're, we're doing massive justice. Massive. And if all the Christians who were obeying God were taken out of this world, do you know how much injustice would go? I mean, it would be unbelievable. Um, I don't want to deal with a professional who doesn't have some level of fear of the Lord. You know, even if he's not a Christian, but he's got some level of, you know, I, I need to be accountable. <laughs> like, I need to not, you know, rip this person off. I need to, oh, goodness. Sorry. Um, I cut my thumb yesterday with a knife. Uh, I don't need stitches. Look, look, a, a few weeks ago I cut it with a table saw. I didn't need stitches for that. I don't need stitches for this. No, I'm fine. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. I know, or electrical tape. Yeah. I just don't have anything on me. Okay. Uh, so anyways, 
Uh, intersectionality, I just want to make sure you're aware of these terms. Intersectionality is the intersection of all these categories of oppression. So a um, lesbian black woman is three times more oppressed than a white homosexual man. You get it? He, he's got homosexuality. She's got sexual minority. She's a woman. And she's African American. That, that's how intersectionality works. And so that helps you to thank you, understand who, it also helps you understand why people who, like that woman, uh, Rachel Dolezal, who claimed to be black, who wasn't, right? Because there's power in that. Um, It'll be easier for someone that's not uh, bleeding. Thanks. Uh, the only person for one is Yes. <laughs> it gets me in trouble sometimes. <laughs> I, I bleed for this church. Yeah, because we don't need to stare at this bloody paper towel. I was working in the house yesterday. I kept leaving bloody fingerprints all over. Like, like that. Um, so that, that's what intersectionality is. Um, white privilege is, and so this, I don't know if you've heard about this book, but White Fragility, it's a bestseller right now. Um, and so this woman, uh, Hector and you on your privilege. White privilege is the automatic taken for granted advantage bestowed upon white people as a result of living in a society based on the premise of white as the human ideal and that from its founding established white advantage as a matter of law and today as a matter of policy and practice. If you don't agree with it, if you want it, if you're even aware of it, it's 24-7, 365. So you've got two options here. You can either affirm that and be woke or disagree with that and be fragile. Those are your options. White fragility or white guilt. Okay? That this is how this is functioning culturally. Um, and so uh, the idea that you could disagree with that because you think she's wrong, that's not an option. So it's very convenient, you know, stance to take. If you think that, uh, it, it's like the when did you stop beating your wife? You know, like no matter how you answer it, you lose, right? Um, so, and again, it, it's, not, it's not that there's absolutely nothing to that. Majority cultures always privilege the majority in the sense of, you know, uh, like, that, that's the way it is. I remember being in Jamaica and, and walking in the streets of Kingston and, and uh, some little children walking by. I was with a group of folks in YWAM. And they go, one, two, three, four whites, right? And we just stood out like a sore thumb there. They were the majority culture. I was the minority, right? Of course. Like, that's how it works everywhere in the world. And, and one, of the, one of the myths of relativism is that all cultures are created equal. They're not. Some cultures are more biblical and godly than others, right? But to say, well, any culture is better because of the color of the skin of the people who inhabit it is silly. It's unbiblical and ridiculous. Um, so are, are there, you know, 
it's just interesting to me too because everybody wants privilege too like you want your kids like so for your kids to grow up in your home with two parents who love each other and stay together that's a privilege for your kids to never have to worry about being fed or being educated that's a privilege right um and those are things that everybody wants for their children regardless of where they're from what the color of their skin is what their sex is what you know uh so it, this is what I'm saying, it, it's, it's, in, it's linked to envy, right? It's linked to envy, and the idea that someone would have something that I want, um, that's a big deal. Uh, and, so, but, and so I think, so this is where I think, I know a lot of people feel guilty um, for being white. Because that's what the culture is saying. And you should feel guilty for being a sinner, but not feel guilty for being white. You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't feel guilty about something that God has made you, whether that's your skin tone, your sex, or, you know, like, no, that's who I am. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty because I'm a man. I'm not guilty because I'm white. I'm, not, you know, uh, I'm guilty because I'm a sinner who's rebelled against God and who's done uh, injustices towards others. And yes, I got plenty of guilt, but not for fabricated things that people are trying to put upon me based on un- unbiblical categories uh, of, of thinking. And, and, my, and, and that's one thing to recognize too with the whole social justice movement. There is no atonement. There's no forgiveness. So you, you literally cannot escape from, if you're white, you can't escape from your guilt. All you can do is do penance in the form of being woke. So you can feel badly. And that's what the, the latest term at the bottom there, anti-racist, is. So we'll get to that. So woke, woke can mean being conscious of racial discrimination, right? But, it, but generally what it means is a white person who's on board with the social justice viewpoint and agenda. And so you've begun to own your privilege and check your privilege. Okay? Those are people who are woke. Eric Mason, who's a pastor in Philly, just wrote a book, Woke Church. Um, one of the guys I pastored with in Trinity Fellowship was raised a socialist Democrat. And he said, I read that book and I said, this is what my dad taught me as a kid. <laughs> I thought that's interesting. So these categories of thought, okay, uh, are affecting the church. Um, and then anti-racism, so it's not enough to own your privilege and check your privilege but you have to actively participate in dismantling systems, privileges, and everyday practices that reinforce and normalize the contemporary dimensions of white dominance. Okay? Again, I, I hate that I'm talking about whiteness so much because it's, it's just not a biblical category. Right? God made us all ethnicities from all over the world. We all have varying different um, levels of melatonin in our skin. We're all colored people in the sense of we all have different color pigment to our skin. That's who God made us to be. And, and to take something a little arbitrary, artificial, and elevate it to a status that the Bible doesn't is to encourage divisiveness and destructiveness. Um, and so this anti-racist, so you know, Oprah just did a show on Apple. I haven't watched it, um, but, but that I know is the focus, to be anti-racist. You need to start uh, waking up to all the ways that America is systemically unjust and you need to be fighting against those things, okay? And so in the name, and again, it's not that there's no validity to various complaints, 
but it's that the whole framework for thinking about it is godless. And so you, you, instead of dealing with, like, real injustices should be identified and dealt with. In as much as we can, recognizing that injustice will never be eradicated in this age. It's one of the points I didn't get to in the teaching. You know, Jesus said the poor will be with you always. Right? And, and even in, in Revelation, you have the martyrs crying out, How long, O Lord? They've been martyred unjustly. And they're waiting for God to vindicate them for their martyrdom. How long, O Lord? Will you wait? So there will be injustice all the days of your life, all the days of your children's lives, all the days of your grandchildren's lives. That's part of what you have to do as a parent is train your children to say, hey, you're going to be wronged, and what are you going to do about it? How are you going to engage with it? Right? Um, But what's happening now is, in our country, unbiblical categories in some quarters. I don't think it's... It's just certain very influential quarters are ascendant, and and um, and so we have to be aware of that. I think we're I think we're naive if we don't think it's affecting people in the church, and if we don't think it's affecting our kids, uh, because it is the atmosphere all around us, um, and and so we need to help others to think biblically, and we need to help them to trust God and not freak out about it. Because it's not new, and God's not threatened. And whatever his purpose is for America, and I don't know what it is, I don't think America's the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, so, you know, who, who knows how long America's going to last? Uh, God knows, you know. Um, We've got to trust him, and we've got to be faithful to what he's called us to, as individuals, as families, as a church. Um, and we can trust him, so... All right, that's a ton of stuff. Uh, questions, interaction on that, on that or anything else. Uh-huh. Not doing that. Helpful questions or interaction. <laughs> It's like the idea of criminality is racist. You hire social. So this is, I think, a big influence of the therapeutic, and and Minneapolis is at least somewhat trying this. Um, you hire social workers because the problem is not sin in man's heart. The problem is much more environmental, and so we need to address these environmental problems. And of course, again, it's not that there's nothing to that. Um, but, yeah, we've, we've focused too much as a society on the idea of criminality and law and order and right and wrong, and that's why, you know, uh, we have the problems we do, and if we would change our focus to addressing social societal problems, and, and it's not that there's absolutely nothing to that, uh, but the big problem is people need to repent and trust God, you know, and stop living wicked lives, but... Um, but yeah, that's what I understand to be behind the defund the police, is that the whole concept is, you know, uh, racist. That's why an African-American cop can be a racist. 
because he's he's participating in the or she is participating in the system, the the, the racist system. That that's how it's framed, yeah. and that's why you see liberal white kids yelling at African American cops in these protests, telling them how racist they are. Um, so, I had a conversation with a client this week. A black, a black individual, I just asked him, you know, how he's doing with all stuff. So we had about 45 minutes of conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he's a believer um, well. Um, but yeah, so it, it, was, it was a good conversation. Um, certainly didn't agree with everything that he said. Uh, I kept trying to, you know, interject you know, truth into the conversation. But, you know, at one point, um, he's, he mentioned that, that, You know, corporations are tripping over themselves to, to virtue signal that they're on board with this stuff. Um, it's, and it's, yeah, it's coming hard and fast. And, you know, Black Lives Matter as an organization is incredibly godless, right? So the, the, the concept that Black Lives Matter, of course, is biblical and right on, but the organization is against the nuclear family. They're, they're into all of the sexual immorality there, you know, so it's incredibly unjust, and yet how many corporations are supporting them? You know, how many cities are painting that on the street and um, professional sports? And like, so there, there's, among the movers and shakers of our culture, there's a, there's a big push on this. And I'm interested to see, is there any pushback? Does anybody say, of course I care about my African-American friends and neighbors and but this agenda is not actually about caring for them. This is about something else altogether. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, One other thought I had um, relates to our vocation and stuff. Uh, interact with the phrase, um, so the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good people to be Yeah, I get it. I, I think it's, um, just show me where the Bible says that. Right. You know what I mean? Like, if you affirm the sovereignty of God, then God has ordained that there's a lot of evil. And, um, and what do you do with that? He's ordained a world where there's tons of injustice. And he's not the author of it. Um, but he tolerates it. And we get things like First Peter 3 where he says, well, this is actually the Lord being patient. It's actually also the Lord giving us the consequences of our sins. Um, where I think that saying has some validity is uh, 
you look at like church history, so often when denominations go liberal, it's about 10 to 20 percent of the of the ministers who are liberal and those who are conservative, whether in the name of peace or convenience or whatever, um, don't don't stop them and just let them go. Uh, I've seen it in the Mennonite church. I've seen it in different Presbyterian denominations. I've seen it, you know, and um, and so that's good people doing nothing from that standpoint because it's not nice. Uh, you see that in Nazi Germany, where all these everyday Germans, you know, um, and and so, and I think that there can be a wrong interaction with authority in Romans 13 that says, "Well, they told me to do this." Well, guess what? That's not absolute, right? Your ultimate authority is God, and so if they tell you to do wickedness, uh, you say no. And then you've you got to be prepared to suffer the consequences of it, but you don't participate in wickedness because you fear the Lord. Um, so I, I, I do think that so much of what's going on culturally is driven by a highly motivated uh, minority of the population. And if more people would stand up and say, no, we're just not going to do this, that it, that it would be shut down. So yes, I think there's truth to that. Um, I think where it gets tricky is, okay, so what do I do? Right, yeah. Well, and, I, and I'm not necessarily, I'm not saying, you know, I mean, protesting, I just, I'm just thinking that engaging the conversation, you know, that kind yeah. of, I'm thinking of, you know, um, you know, love your, the Lord your God, love your heart, soul, mind, strength, love right. your neighbor, yourself, use my name. Right. It's not just, there's no black people who live next to me, so I'm like, you know, yeah. you know, right. Like, no, Absolutely. I mean, I think that's where the, the courage is called for. Okay, I have to be willing to state an unpopular position. Um, but, like, I mean, I could, uh, you know, pastorally, there's always a challenge of um, you have to apply things. But if you get over-specific in application, it's easy to go beyond what God's Word says. Uh, and and to get so focused on, well, this is the program. This is what you have to. And so this is, I mean, you see this all the time. If you've gotten any, like, fundraising letters for even Christian organizations, if we don't, you know, do this, then such and such a tragedy is going to happen. Well, maybe, you know. Uh, but I think God's still in control. And he can do things like, you know, shut down our economy in two minutes. <laughs> you know, like, he, he's still in charge. And so... Um, the the underlined urgency of we got to do this particular thing now, maybe, right? What you do need to do is love God and love your neighbor. The particular applications of that, I think, come down to your vocation and come down to wisdom. So, um, yeah, so, you, like, I know Pete has neighbors who are out there liberals and signs and everything. And so the question is, what's actually loving to them? You know, how do I engage these people? Um, is it loving to be, uh, you know, contentious? Uh, call it what you will, but to push back on them. 
You know, is that actually loving them? Well, maybe. It kind of depends on our relationship, and it kind of depends on how open they are to conversation. Um, that, that, and that's where I think it's subtle. Where I feel as a pastor is I don't want to turn my focus to those things in a way that would lead away from the gospel. Because we will. We'll lose the gospel. And, and then there's really no point to us, you know, without the gospel. And so um, if there's a way for us to oppose evil, like I know, I mean, I wasn't here, but I know the church opposed the Planned Parenthood in Lancaster. That's a, that's a right opposition to evil, right? That's not the gospel. Uh, that's, that's the church having a societal impact because of the gospel. Uh, you know, it's, it's really... Um, seeking to care for the unborn in our county and make it harder to murder a baby, you know? Um, that, that's a good thing. To say that every church that didn't participate in that was unfaithful, that would be wrong. Just like, you know, every Christian should do this and every Christian should do it. No, I mean, that's... Uh, so, and that, so that's one of the questions I put in here is what should the church be doing about social problems? I think a lot of what the church should be doing about social problems is what individual Christians should be doing in their individual lives about social problems. You should be faithful. You should work hard with your hands. You should not depend on others. You should, you know, like, and, and so the church's role is to disciple people. I mean, we have two, two roles, basically. Well, three, evangelism, but disciple people and prepare you to die. Like, that, that's what we're here to do. And, and so the, the societal justice impact of the church should be measured by what you're doing in your individual Christian lives, in your f- families. Are you loving your families? Are you faithful at your work? Are you um, mowing your grass? Are you kind to your neighbors? Do you, you know, like, there's all kinds of social good going on because of the people in this church. And that's what we're doing about social problems. Now, if something happens, if there's a situation that we can do something about, great, you know? But, but the idea that we should be just basically always looking around for all these things that we should engage in, I just find that hard to reckon with. No, God has given us some pretty clear priorities. And, and you know, there's always wisdom questions of, hey, here's a need, what should I do? Right? What should I do? What should I do? What should the church do? What should my care group do? Like, whatever, you know? Um, and I, I'm much less inclined to start big social prob- uh, programs as a church. Um, there, there could be a time and place for that, right? Uh, but I don't think that's um, I don't think that's uh, essential to the mission of the church. I think it can be one way that the church does something, cares, and makes an impact in the community. But if the church doesn't do that, I don't think it's failing at its mission as a church. You know what I mean? Uh, so, so then it just becomes a question of, well, what, what do we have providentially? You know? um, so like we've, we've uh, helped out Martin in various ways. You know, they had... Uh, the kids come over here because I forget. Do you remember, Abby, what was going on? Um, something in the building. 
and, and uh, they came over here, and I think actually Doug sang a song and did some stuff, and so we had, you know, all these elementary kids in our auditorium, because we're being good neighbors to the public school, you know. Um, does that mean that every church that isn't engaging with their school is failed? No, it's silly, right? That's a providential thing that God has, you know, the nursing homes right here, these are providential relationships that God has given us. Um, uh, should we have a food bank? I don't think so. There's plenty of food banks around. It'd be better to support those food banks. Like, so, you know, these are the things. So are we not having a social impact because we don't have a food bank? Does a church that does have a food bank have more social impact than us? I just think it's way too simple, right? Um, the, the social impact of the church is measured by the good deeds of its members. How many good deeds are our members doing? Tons. Tons of good deeds all over the place. So I just, you know, uh, it's definitely a different way of, of thinking about it than a lot of what you get out in evangelicalism, but I think it's biblical. So. into a number of issues there. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, this is, we did the doctrine of vocation a few years back as a vital life. And, and just that category of whatever you do in faith that's biblically acceptable is a good work. Right? And so to understand, you, you are literally doing good, good works all day if you do it in faith. If you do it out of love for God and love for your neighbor. You're doing good works. And Ephesians 2.10 tells us that those are the things that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So when you're, you know, the young mom at home with your kids and, you, and you're in the grind and you, you want adult interaction and you feel overwhelmed and you feel like, I can't believe I have to make another meal and another mess, and, you know. Uh, and, and in the midst of that, you remember, no, this is, you know, I'm going to serve in the strength that God supplies. This is what God has called me to and God's good. So let me love my kids. And, and that's a good deed. It's actually a glorious good deed because you're, 
you're, you're repenting and turning in faith to the Lord and serving for Him. Like it, uh, that, that's, a, that's a gospel change that doesn't come from you, you know? It comes from God. Um, and that's, that's doing justice. Like that's your responsibility for God that you're fulfilling and you're caring for your children. You're doing justice. And if you didn't do it, it would be an injustice and it would create social problems. So that's where I think uh, the church, part of its social impact, and this is impossible to measure, but how many social problems would there be if we weren't fulfilling the responsibilities that God calls us to? That's, that's part of how you've got to measure it too. Right? If I wasn't providing for my family, if you weren't, you know, uh, you know, if Tom didn't care if his students learned anything, if, you know, like, th- that, would, that would have terrible social effect. Um, but because he does care, they're, they're growing, they're learning, they have skills and abilities, and, like, he's doing justice, he's doing good deeds. So I just think this category is a lot broader than what our culture is trying to focus on right now. Uh, and that, that focus is some unbiblical categories and some narrowing that misses so many things that are necessary. Uh, so, all right, it's about noon. Any, uh, this is your, your last chance to ask, the, to drop the bomb. Question. I, I'm just reflecting that and not I mean pride can come in everywhere, but there's a humility to just doing the simple thing mm-hmm. before God that it seems like um, our humanness is not easily content with mm-hmm. we want to do the bigger thing that's splashy right. and more news. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, that's, and that's where I think, um, just to say it again, if you understand sin, and you understand your need for a Savior, and you understand Jesus for who He is, that is the great cause of your life. And you don't need a greater cause to live for. There is no greater cause to live for than God and His glory. And, and, and so when you see someone whose greatest cause in life is other than that, that can give you some indications of how they think about their own sin and the grace of God in their life, right? They're not very impressed with Jesus because he's not very impressive because they didn't really need him, right? And, but they're really impressed with this. They're really concerned about that. I'm not saying we shouldn't have passions. I'm not saying we shouldn't be engaged with various things. I'm just saying it should be really clear who's ultimate. Um, so, uh, and then, you know, uh, it's interesting that the, the idols of sports are being attacked because there's people who live and die with their sports teams, for example. Um, and that's tragic. <laughs> that's really tragic. But All right, let's pray and we'll let you go. Father, we, we're so grateful for your word and your spirit that you uh, have not left us uh, alone into our own thinking and devices, but you've given us your word so that we can um, we can walk in truth. We can we can have a standard to assess these ideas that are presented to us. And okay, well, does this line up with what God says? Is this consistent with His character? Is it is it um, is it glorifying to you? 
And so we pray that as we do go out into the vocations that you've given us, the roles and responsibilities, that we would go in faith, that we'd be even more conscious of uh, loving and trusting you and working for your glory and loving our neighbors. We pray that you would be glorified in what we do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.